I want to invite you, if you will, to take your copies of Scripture and turn to Second uh, Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Um, for those who may not be familiar with navigating through the Bible, it's uh, about halfway through the New Testament. Find your place there, Second Corinthians. It's good to see each one of you. We have some guests here this morning. I want to say uh, we bless the Lord that you made your way here to worship with us today. And uh, I think uh, I've seen all of you before, but uh, just uh, uh, just personally, I want to say I'm just uh, grateful to be here with you today. I, I want to encourage you, if you will, to hold on to your worship guides. Uh, take them home with you, navigate through them through the course of the week. The reason why uh, is we uh, purposefully put them together so that you can think back through the things that are said and the things that we sing uh, through the course of our service. Uh, you find it interesting that today we sang three songs that we normally would sing either on a Christmas morning or we would sing a Christmas Eve service. And we would hold those songs specifically for then, but they were specifically placed in our order today uh, because uh, they were either directed toward the prophecy that God sent to Zechariah and even before then, even to Isaiah and others, but to Zechariah in regards to the state of the world, that is darkness, and that he was sending a light into that world. And every one of those songs pointed to that and pointed to who that light was. And uh, I think some of this will make uh, a little bit more sense to you as we make our way through the text today. We are considering uh, Advent. This is the second Sunday of Advent. And, and during Advent, we have, been, uh, we have said that we want to uh, look at uh, specifically... Look at it through the lens of God's love. In other words, Advent is God's loving response to the things that He most loves, the things that He most desires, the things that He most appreciates. Um, last week we had an opportunity to uh, look at the fact that uh, Advent is God's loving response to His own Son. Uh, today, uh, we are looking at Advent as God's loving response to His Word. Uh, I find that interesting in light of uh, the very beginning in Genesis, in chapter 3 and verse 15, uh, we hear in God's statement of judgment on the serpent after He attempted the first woman, Eve, and, and she sinned, and then of course her husband followed her in her sin. God told the serpent, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, a specific person, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The very first time that we hear of the promise of God in sending his son. And then from that time, God continued to communicate uh, to the world, mind you, primarily through extraordinary events and through his own words, 
mostly through the prophets, that he was going to send a Savior. And that that Savior would be his son. I want you to listen to just a few of them. Okay? Uh, You'll be glad to know that when I completed uh, uh, my writings for this week, it was 50 pages. I didn't bring 50 pages with me. Uh, I brought seven. You'll be glad to know that. You wouldn't have stayed for the 50, though you would have benefited from it, uh, but we're to seven. But I want you to listen to some of these, and you may want to jot these references down. To Abraham, God said, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. He went on to tell Abraham, he said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. That's 17, 19 in Genesis. To Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, God said, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 28:14. And when Jacob called his sons together, his 12 sons, when he called them together, just before he is about to, uh, to take his last breath, this is kind of his, uh, his last word to his family, he has them gathered around him, he says these words to one of his sons, Judah. And this is the Holy Spirit speaking, mind you, through Jacob. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of all nations shall be his. To David, the second king of the nation of Israel, God said these words, When your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you up, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I want you to hear these words forever, forever. To the prophet Isaiah, God gave this message. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call Him Emmanuel. Through the prophet Hosea, God gave this reminder to the world. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then through the prophet Micah, the Lord sent this message and we sang We sang about it this morning, O little town of Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, listen, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And these are just a few. We could read on and on. Throughout the pages of Scripture, the record of God's redemptive history as it's related primarily to Israel, but not just limited to Israel. God repeatedly promised that He was sending a Redeemer. 
And then as we've been reminded this week in our Advent devotions, the angel came to a young peasant woman who was named Mary, who was already betrothed to be married. But she remained a virgin. And the angel told her that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit and would give birth to the Son of the Most High God. It's an incredible statement. And the angel then came to Joseph, the man to whom she was betrothed. And he came to him in a dream, and the angel told him, he said, carry through with your plans to marry this woman. Her honor is intact. She is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he said, and she will give birth to a son, and you call his name Jesus. And we have heard this repeatedly since we started in Matthew chapter 1. For he will save his people from their sins. This brings us uh, to our text today, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And the title of our message, as I said, is Advent, God's Loving Response to His Word. Before we read the text, I want to ask this question, and this is a question that I pose myself. What should we expect when we come to God's Word? What should we expect when we come to God's Word? Listen to what God's Word says about God's Word. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The glory of Israel will not lie. The word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. This God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord proves true. Every Word of God proves true. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now what do we gather from that? And we could just continue. Those are just a few that I selected. What can we gather from that? is that God loves His Word. He keeps His Word. His Word is pure. His Word is sure. And He will always bring about what He says. Every time. You may not can count on me, but you can count on God. We may not can count on each other at times, but we can always count on God to keep His Word. Don't ever look to a man and somehow suppose that if man breaks His Word, that somehow God will. Because God will never break His Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to give us some context here, so I want to back up and I want to begin reading in verse 8. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. He said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him, 
we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on the way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Uh, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Uh, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit and our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. Uh, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Uh, not that we lord it over your faith. But we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Will you pray with me? Father, would you help us to understand what you intended when the Holy Spirit told Paul and he wrote that Jesus Christ, your Son, uh, is your yes. Help us in this in Christ's name. Amen. It, it might be helpful for us to have a little background and a little context. And I want to take just a few minutes to do this. Uh, if you recall, two weeks ago, uh, we gave a little background on Paul's Macedonian call, uh, which led him, remember, to Thessalonica, and we gave attention to uh, a, a, a portion of the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Remembering that, as in most places, the preaching of the gospel uh, causes disruption, and ultimately, not only does it cause disruption, but it brings about persecution to the preachers and evangelists, and sometimes even to those who are believing, most often to those who are believing. And, and that was the case whenever Paul went to, uh, uh, to, to the Thessalonians. Uh, and we read how he had to slip away at night. He had to be taken away at night to try to see if they could get things settled down there. Well, Paul continued on from there and went to Athens, and we pointed to that. And then from Athens, he went to Corinth. Uh, and Acts chapter 18 and verse 11 tells us that Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months 
You know, for, for church planters, that's a pretty long time for them to stay, particularly in the way that Paul was working and in the way that he was doing his work. But he stayed there for 18 months. Uh, and uh, he saw the church well established there in Corinth. And he left Corinth, and then he went to Ephesus. Uh, and if we were to go back and look at that, we'd realize that he stayed in Ephesus for almost three years. Now, while in Ephesus, Paul received word of some of the challenges that were taking place uh, in Corinth. Uh, and so he wrote a letter, what we have as 1 Corinthians, he wrote that letter and he gave it to Timothy and Timothy took that letter to Corinth. Um, Timothy returned and reported back to Paul and he told him just how difficult things were. There were issues regarding the way they were loving each other, the way they were dealing with sin. There were all kinds of things that were going on in the church that disturbed Paul. And so we hear then, whenever Timothy comes back, uh, that Paul made, and if you'll look in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, and we stop short of this, but in looking verse 1, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? It points to that Paul possibly made a visit back to Corinth but most likely, what he did, he wrote another letter that represented him there, and it was noted on his part and on their part. Man, this is a painful letter. I don't know if you've ever received a painful letter, but I have received uh, some painful letters. And this was a, and it, and, and Paul realized how hard this was to write this letter or to make this visit. But nevertheless, we see that, and Paul describes it as painful. He mentions this because much of 2 Corinthians, so you'll understand where we're going, much of 2 Corinthians is just a Paul's personal defense of his ministry in Corinth. Uh, because when he wrote that painful letter, uh, there became those that uh, he later uh, describes in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, these super apostles, which were false apostles. They weren't apostles at all. But they began to make allegations and make accusations toward Paul. And it seems like that there were two things in particular that they kind of targeted Paul for. One, and we'll talk about this in just a minute. One, they said he wasn't truthful because he said he was going to come back and he didn't come back. And he didn't come back when he was said he was going to come back. So he's not truthful. That was one. And the other is, uh, they targeted him and said, he wouldn't take your pay when you tried to pay him when he was here in Corinth. He refused to take your money. And he said he didn't take your money because he loved you. But that's really not why. He was just trying to be crafty. And those were the two allegations. Now, we think about that even in our own context. If we were in a relationship and, and we were told, one, uh, uh, you're, not, you're, you're not truthful because you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And, and if we knew that our heart was, no, we didn't carry out that action, but there were circumstances that prevented us from carrying out that action, then there would be, at least in some part, a, a desire on our part to try to defend our position. Paul was trying to defend his position, not so much because of him and his word, but it seems as though he is defending his position in 2 Corinthians because he doesn't want them 
to think less of the gospel because of him. And that seems to be the tone. And, and then just think about it for just a moment. If somebody came and they served you and you offered to pay them and they wouldn't take it, uh, but then you took offense because they wouldn't take it and said, you didn't do it because you love me. You've got some other kind of motive behind it. Well, actually, when Paul was in Corinth, the Macedonians were supporting Paul in his ministry in Corinth. Now, we don't know all the particulars around that, but I even thought through that myself. I said, my goodness, Paul loved him. Maybe he just didn't want to double dip. His needs were being taken care of. He didn't need what they had to bring to him. He wasn't trying to take advantage of them, is what he said. He said, I don't want to be a burden to you. He didn't need to be a burden to them because the Macedonians were supporting him. I even thought and said, well, maybe he knew the Macedonians needed to support him for their mission effort to teach them that they needed to support other missionaries as they were going to other places. Don't know all the reasons why. But that's the tone and that's the climate in the course of this and that's what's going on but I want you to notice it is in the midst of all of this confusion that Paul writes and we read it and I want us to hear it again for the Son of God Jesus Christ whom we proclaim among you Silvanus talking about Silas and Timothy and I was not yes and no but in Him, it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. I want you to hear that. In the middle of all of this, He points away from Himself and He points back to Christ. The question seems to be, why did Paul make the shift? Why did he make the shift? Paul may be saying, okay, I've tried to help you understand that I wasn't fickle, that I'm not a liar, and that I love you. But if you can't see that, and if you don't understand that in the course of the way I have cared for you and your ministry, then I've done all I can. I'm ending my defense of me. But what is more important than my word, my name, even my ministry in your presence, what is more important is for you to realize that the Christ whom we proclaimed then and now, He is God's yes to all of His promises. So don't look at me and then look away from Christ. No, look to Him. Christ is God's yes to everything that He ever promised. I want us to look at the foundation of that promise and then we'll talk about that for a little bit. So if you will, take your copies of Scripture and flip over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to begin in verse 7. We're going to track along here. And I want you to hear how important this promise is. Because remember, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth who were Gentiles. 
this promise we have pointed to is huge, but we need to hold on to this because it is a promise that God has made. Remember, we read the promises in the beginning, all of those promises that had come to Abraham, that had come to Isaac, that had come to Jacob, that all the peoples would be blessed because of what God was going to do in and through this lineage. We have looked at the, the, the unfolding of that in Christ Jesus. So in verse 7, Paul writes to the church there, uh, uh, the Galatians, Know then uh, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, we repeatedly talk about this in faith. I, I want you to hear me today. Uh, if you are here today and you have not professed faith in Christ, then you are, as Adam pointed us to just a moment ago, you remain in darkness, separated from God. That darkness is blackness. It is void of any and everything except the wrath of God. And that is full and it is furious. You remain under the wrath of God. The wrath of God, Scripture tells us, the wrath of God is on you. I'm not trying to scare you. I just want you to hear how significant this thing of faith and trust in Christ Jesus is. And Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Okay? So we started in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and we heard what is known as the Proto-Evangelium. In other words, the first announcement of the gospel. We come to God establishing His covenant with Abraham, and we hear again that the gospel was preached to Abraham. He was pointing to Christ, and He said that all the nations would be blessed because of Him. So then, verse 9, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you would skip down to uh, skip down to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is every one who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We've already looked at, uh, just heard just a minute ago, that promised Spirit is the Spirit that seals. That promised Spirit is the Spirit that comes to bring life, to give revelation, and then seals those who trust and believe in Him, seals them to the end. And, and, that, and that is a permanent seal too, by the way. That is, a, that is a permanent, eternal sealing of the Holy Spirit that secures everyone who trusts in Christ all the way to the end. Just keep, keep looking in look in verse uh, yep, look in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Notice it's still tied here to a promise. Who made the promise? 
God made the promise. That's the point. God made the promise. His promise is secured by His Word. He spoke it. He's made a promise. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by uh, an intermediary. Now an intermediary uh, implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And in verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you of you who were baptized into Christ uh, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise that God had made to Abraham. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Because there are in this promise things that we should expect from God. We heard what we should expect from His Word. Here are the things that you can expect from God if you have faith in Christ. If you place your faith and trust in Christ. And I want you to jot these down. If you're in Christ, this is what has been promised to you. That you have been seated in the heavenly places even while you live on this earth. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, said, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you've trusted in Christ, you have been set in those heavenly places. That is the fulfillment of the promise because of being in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are being sanctified and made holy. Paul writes to the church in, in Corinth, and we didn't read it, but it was before our text, to the church God, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus that are being purified and made holy. There's the promise to you. That's what you can expect because of being in Christ. In Christ Jesus, everything that you ever needed will be supplied. Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory. In who? In Christ Jesus. In Christ, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. 
Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus you have eternal life. Paul writing to the church at Rome said, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And in Christ Jesus, you will be raised from the dead at the coming of the Lord. We sang about it earlier. Uh, we've heard it read already again today. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is, is Paul was pointing the church at Corinth that all of God's promises are yes and done in Christ. That Christ, God incarnate, coming to this earth in the first advent. And that's the reason that I argue today that advent is God's loving response to His own word. He's saying, I'm going to keep my word and the only way for these promises to be kept, the only way is for me to release my Son to come to earth in the midst of the darkness and be light and to die for your sin. It's huge. The bottom line is God's love for His Word and faithfulness to keep His promises are put on display in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In no greater way. The incarnation of God is God's yes to everything. Yahweh. We've heard it mentioned. Adam and Booney both. Pointing to the triune Godhead. That is not just something that we say. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit joined together in one mind and in one purpose, determined and planned and purposed that the Son of God would leave heaven and be born to a virgin and here would live and do what we couldn't do, live in righteousness, and die and bear the wrath of God for our sin. He planned it and purposed it. Jesus is God's yes to the world. Hear that. He is God's yes to the world. He's the long-expected king that was promised to Israel. It's been said that he is the apex of the Old Testament. When we see Noah and his family go into the ark, we are seeing a picture of Christ and God's plan to save his people in him. When Moses meets Melchizedek, the high priest, who was before the Aaronic priesthood, and Moses pays him tribute, we are seeing a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who's not of man's seed, but who is God. When we read of Moses coming to deliver Israel from the bondage of Egypt, we are reminded that there is one greater than Moses who has come to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death. When we read of the Passover lamb being slain and the blood being sprinkled on the doorpost of the little with the branch of the hyssop, 
purifying, making it possible for that, for that death angel to pass over, what we are hearing about and being told is that there is coming a day when the Lamb of God, whose blood, if applied to you, will cleanse you and wash you whiter than snow, and death will have no power over you. When we see the pathway made through the Red Sea for Israel to have safe passage and escape the ones seeking to destroy them, we're reminded that this is a picture of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. When God provided manna in the wilderness to feed His hungry people and brought water from a rock to quench His thirsty people, we're reminded that God is sending Jesus into our wilderness. Into our wilderness the very bread of life and the living water to satisfy what? To satisfy our hungry and thirsty souls. When we read of the suffering servant in Isaiah, we are reminded that God sent His Son and was willing to crush Him for the sake of seeing His offspring, the redeemed by His blood. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is God's yes to every promise he has ever made. And Paul said, because of that, look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is why it is through him that we utter our yes, our amen, to God for his glory. If you haven't trusted Christ and said yes to the glory of God by professing faith in Christ, know today that Jesus is God's yes to you if you'll trust Him. Please say yes to God's glory. And believer, I hope your heart is encouraged that Christ is God's yes and amen to you and holds you and keeps you and is ultimately the one who secures you for all of eternity. The advent. God's loving response to say, I will keep my word. And he has. And He will, because He doesn't lie, and His Word stands true. Seven short pages. Why are they important? Well, for some of us today, we stand in need of trusting Christ. And each week we make a plea on God's behalf to trust Him. To trust Him. To trust His atoning work. To trust God's yes for you. We make a plea every week. And we do again this week. And we seek to encourage believers to understand that there's no greater affirmation than Christ. 
Yes, yes, yes. God's shouting yes all along the way. We today want to pray for you if you haven't trusted Christ. But we also want to pray for our community. And that's not just something that we say. We are investing our lives uh, in lives of people, hopefully, that has been our point to you find your one. You find your one person and invest in them to the point of pointing them to Christ. Uh, understanding that they're struggling. Grayson and I were talking. I, I, we, we, uh, the darkness of this world is, is, is just incredibly black. And, and to be honest with you, it's bleak. Because apart from Christ, there, there is no place to turn. There is no place to turn apart from Christ. That's by God's design. You know what? He really, he really in sending Christ and in this yes, removed all of the confusion. Because everything else is a no. Have you ever thought about it? Everything else is a no. He only gives us one way. And He's crystal clear in it. He's crystal clear in it. So if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ and you're waiting for something else, it ain't coming. If you're waiting for someone else, they're not going to show up. They're not going to show up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for saying yes, for shouting yes, yes, yes in Christ. Thank you for not abandoning your word. Thank you for not withholding him. Lord Jesus, thank you for not staying in heaven. Thank you for coming and suffering and dying for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us who believe. Thank you for appropriating that to us. So there is this peace that we know. There is this security that we have. We are grateful for it. But our hearts are burdened, even as we come to you now, Father. Because all around us we see darkness. We see hopelessness. We see men and women who are struggling. We, we see them in states of confusion. We, we see them apathetic toward you, God. And we're asking you today to cause the light of the gospel to shine again and again and again and use us, God, to faithfully proclaim that your yes is in your Son. And it never was a hard yes for you. Because you had planned to redeem a people who would trust in you. And God, today we plead for the souls of those who have not yet said yes to your glory in Christ. But Father, for us not to be insensitive... We are awaiting. We're awaiting your return. 
And as much as we want you to come back today, we understand that for those who would not say yes to you, that your return would be a dreadful day for them. But you've given us today. God help us as we bear witness and testimony of you. Bring about your work according to your will. And we pray this in the name of your yes. Jesus. Your son. Amen.